0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I am your host Corey Walsh. I didn't say that last time. I realized not that many of you are really listening to it for the uh, the fanfare. It's probably more likely than not that you guys are listening to the podcast more so to realize that I was one and three last week and before I started feeling like garbage, feeling like wow, I couldn't. I almost went zero for four. If it wasn't for Josh McCown coming in, it wasn't Josh's fault. But then I realized every other expert on the planet basically was wrong. Might, I could have been uh, like Greeny on uh, Get Up, who went 0 for 4. I was pretty close, as if I was never picking the Eagles to win that game, despite both teams being extremely banged up, and it was kind of a crapshoot as viewed by, mo- by most. But I didn't really feel that way at all. All right, so... Um, like you guys, I we, we all watched Wild Card Weekend, I assume. If you're listening to this, I don't know why you would listen to it if you didn't watch it. I don't know, people are weird. Anyway, so the Wild Card Weekend, as a whole, all really close games. I felt that it was one of my favorite Wild Card Weekends, even though there wasn't like any like explosion-type take hunter s games where you really felt that one team was completely robbed and the other didn't deserve it. Most teams that won honestly earned it. But we're going to start with the one team that decided to poop away their lead before while they had it, and in classic Four Falls of Buffalo fashion, the Buffalo Bills once again blew their lead against the Texans. The Buffalo was definitely the most popular upset pick of the week. They were playing a Houston team that was so up and down that they couldn't even like no expert could honestly project which Texans team would show up. And in classic Texans fashion, it showed up in two different halves. This game was basically the tale of two halves. The comeback, I guess, if you want to call it. The Bills appeared to be on their way to winning this game as it was 16-0 through two and a half quarters. You thought, oh, well, the Texans are going to Texan again, and Buffalo's actually going to show some improvement, unlike the past years in which they've made the playoffs. However... The Texans then proceeded to score 19 points while the Bills stuck their heads in the sand and played conservative football like they've basically done all year to muster up only 38 yards total through the last 16 minutes of the game in the third and fourth quarter. Four hours of action would pass by before the Buffalo Bills actually found the end zone again for the second time. And it's ironic because... The comeback, I don't know for those who know NFL history, but the Bills set an NFL record for the largest comeback in NFL history when they rallied from a 32-point deficit for a 41-38 to 38 overtime win against the Houston Oilers in a wild-card game back in 1993. Uh, well, I guess the Texans kind of got their revenge of sorts because Josh darn it, Josh Allen sucked in the second half. He started this game off in a great, like, jaw-dropping fashion for me, seeing as he broke off a 42-yard run to start the game and then caught a touchdown pass from John Brown on the opening drive. And I was like, oh my god, this Buffalo Bills offense, it's going all out. They weren't really known as an offensive team, but they were just firing on all cylinders. Yeah, Josh Allen ended up only throwing for 264 yards in the game. Yeah, that sounds like okay on paper, but keep in mind there was overtime in this game and he threw 46 passes. So, 264 yards on 46 passes is no longer that okay of a stat. It's pretty pretty atrocious when you think about it. That comes out to like about 6 yards in attempt under that, which is pretty bad, especially when you're known as a big arm gunslinger quarterback. It wasn't all Josh Allen's fault though. Duke Williams, who I don't think any of us knew, unless you're a Buffalo fan, before this game, had some key drops. He threw to Duke Williams in the end zone. Duke Williams had it in his hands on one one of the weirdest last quarter, dri- like fourth quarter drives I've ever seen. He threw it to him. Th- like they had, um, Doug, Doug McDermott had the ball. He had Josh Allen throw it with, like, 11 seconds left to, like, the far ends of the end zone three consecutive times, and I'm thinking Josh Allen is not this accurate. He overthrows tight ends in the end zone on, like, first and goals at the five. So why are we thinking that he's going to throw this absolute miracle pass into the end zone to seal a victory over going for the field goal? Luckily, it didn't bite them in the ass, seeing as Josh Allen – just overthrew in classic Josh Allen fashion, except for the Duke Williams throw, which Duke Williams definitely could have caught, and that game would have been over. But after that, it was basically, the stage was set, and it was over. Uh, they couldn't muster that up. Houston was on such a hot streak, scoring those 19 points, and it really leads to the conversation leading into the play of the game, which was with Deshaun Watson, that Deshaun Watson is starting to kind of be underappreciated, I know we consider him like the cream of the crop and like the youth quarterbacks but he's like starting to become like a top 8, top 7 quarterback in the NFL. Watson's offense scored 19 consecutive points in the second half taking the 19 to 16 lead. He ran for 20-yard score, he threw a 5-yard touchdown and he converted both the two-point conversions, one of which was with his legs and another with his arm. He finished 20 for 25. Passing for 247 yards and added 55 yards on the ground, which led us to the great play of the game, which was where Deshaun Watson looked like he was about to be just submerged by two defensive linemen, Saran Neal and Matt Milano, back in his own territory. But then he scrambles out of the pocket in what looked like Eli Manning's Super Bowl 42 fashion and throws a little tiny dink pass to Taewon Jones, like the third string running back who runs for his entire, like, for, like, 30-plus yards, gets him to, like, basically the goal line where they just punch it in, and it's over. This game, like, Deshaun Watson basically did this while scrambling for his life the entire game. I don't know how, despite getting this console from Miami, the O-line was getting absolutely wrecked by Buffalo's defense the entire game. He was sacked seven times. All right, so here's the argument for why Deshaun Watson is starting to be underappreciated. If, like, you didn't feel after that game he was already underappreciated. He has one Pro Bowl offensive weapon, DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, okay, Two okay running backs. I don't know. I, I feel like people will argue that Duke Johnson's one of the best pass-catching running backs. He's pretty okay. I mean, he has. he's never going to make a Pro Bowl by any sort. There's way better pass catching running backs. I feel like I'd rather have White. I would rather have, obviously, Kamara and McCaffrey. There's just what, like the pass catching Eckler, I'd rather have Eckler. I mean, there's so many options you would rather have. He has eh tight ends. I mean, for God's sakes, Fells. Is not that talented, and he was like the leading red zone touchdown scorer for the Texans this year. Daniel Fells. If you only knew him if you had him on your fantasy team. I mean, he's very productive, despite the fact that the Texans are nineteenth in team pass plays per game. They'd rather run it more with Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson. Whatever. He's sixteenth in attempts, eighteenth in red zone attempts, twelfth in protection rate, and this is what's absolutely like you think of the wide receiver options that the Texans have they have Hopkins they have Fuller they have Stills they had Braxton Miller definitely not there anymore but they're 31st in receiver target separation and they're 15th in dropped passes Bill O'Brien's the coach he's the GM but he has he, he he seemed this year that he made an attempt to try to make the line better but at the same time, it doesn't matter how good an O-line is, or in this case, it's still not that great, but he really needs to focus, because Will Fuller can only stay on the field apparently for a quarter at a time before deciding to get hurt again, you need to focus this draft, even though you lost your picks in the first round, you need to try to find a good wide receiver to help when Will Fuller can't be there, and Kenny Stills is still severely overpaid from that Miami deal, so... If I were Bill O'Brien, if he's still GM, which I assume considering they're in the divisional round now, they probably will be, um, I would probably focus on a wide receiver. As a whole, though, Buffalo, t- hats off to them. They had a great year, 10-6, and six, best record they've had in a while. I know they lost this game, but if the Patriots look like they're on the downswing, unless certain things go into place, which I don't, I'm don't. i not going to talk about that now. But Buffalo looks like they could have this division for a few years, especially if Josh Allen continues to improve. I know his completion percentage is kind of an issue, but at the same time, he's still young. He's really athletic. He had some throws in that game that were pretty impressive, even though he seems to shoot. He, he throws the ball as if he's blindfolded, and you wouldn't even know it, considering he overthrows so many people <laughs> who are completely open. All right, the uh, the potential funeral, as people are calling it, the dynasty ender, uh, Titans versus the Pats, running amok. Um, the Titans won because of two reasons. The two reasons that I perceived in the last podcast could be it. Uh, Derrick Henry continues his display of dominance, uh, and Mike Vrabel outcoaching Belichick, which I honestly, I didn't think, but like the Belichick versus Disciple record is starting to get kind of alarming. But it's obviously because of familiarity with the system, and he knows, Vrabel knows how Belichick would be able to approach a game, and he knows what he'll look at on the Titans side and what he'll try to eliminate. Everyone kind of foresaw what Belichick would do, and he did the exact thing people predicted. But, like, as the announcers showed in the game, Romo and Nance, that uh, when they played against. Rushing teams last year they used the same formation that they used in this game where they would stack the box and make it so they would never they'd have to run to the outside because they know derrick henry is just a run down the middle won't be using elusive moves to break it to the outside type running back but it didn't work mostly because i feel like derrick henry is completely different than playing any other running back in this league he is an absolute physical freak In terms of running right down the middle, there's no one else that's going to dominate the line of scrimmage like Derrick Henry did. The NFL's leading rusher definitely made his presence felt this year, and so far, very felt through early this postseason. The Patriots entered this game, as I stated last week, with the fifth, the 6th best rushing defense. And statistically, it's the best overall defense this season. And you could tell right from the get-go they were not stopping Derrick Henry. He had 49 rushing yards in the opening possession. And he had 100 rushing yards by halftime. He had both the scores. And he took over the game in the final moments and carried the Titans into the next round with 182 yards and scoring on 34 carries. He had a score on 34 carries. 14 more yards, and he would have doubled New England's entire rushing yards for the entire game. I I, I warned you guys last week that this rushing defense, even though statistically high, just got burned by Joe Mixon three weeks ago. Like, I know the team is the boogeyman. Yeah, okay, the defense was good when they played 10 teams – that were all basically non-playoff contenders except for Buffalo but Buffalo is divisional and I don't count divisional games as like a display if a team's good or not except I guess by the Dolphins game in week 17 which was an exception to that because there was actual importance for that game for the Patriots but let's be honest if they even smug- like smuggled that win away from Miami barely won they definitely would have got their ass kicked by whatever team went in there. It probably would have been the Chiefs, who were play- who we would have had to play anyway, except it would have been New England and Arrowhead. And maybe – like I okay, I'm not even going to say maybe. This team was really not playing well in the second half of the season. They just were not good at all, and it really showed. Another huge thing about this game is that the Brady Bunch got canceled in embarrassing fashion. Their leading receiver was James White, which – if you watched the game, you would have totally expected because it seemed like every Brady pass was either a slant, a dink and dunk off to James White or like a five yard, five to eight yard throw to Benjamin Watson and a ton of drops. So 10 of Brady's completions were to the running backs, five to White, three to Burkhead, two to Sony Michelle. Lots of catches were dropped in key moments that were not on Tom Brady, Julian Edelman, was banged up all year, struggled to do much of anything. Brady tried to get him going with that jet sweep where he pretended that Julian Edelman was in the wrong spot and trying to get him to locate so they could just toss it behind, have Edelman just walk into the end zone. Nikhil Harry had a brutal drop as a, Basically, the whole day was very inefficient. He caught two of his seven targets. Brady was screaming at him every time he went into the huddle. Once again, Mohamed Sanu, the swindler, decided to finish his his absolutely atrocious run in New England by having a defender come over the top to break the pass, which was then picked off for a touchdown by Logan Ryan. Sanu caught one of his five targets. Congrats, Mohamed. You were really worth that second-round pick. I'm sure we that, the Patriots could have picked... Anyone else with that second round pick and probably would have had not only less expectation, but would have actually delivered a little more on the lesser expectation. Ben Watson had one catch for 30 yards, which looked like the upswing New England needed, but nope, never mind. That wasn't going to happen because you had Shaq Mason who was just blocking upfield, but they called a penalty. Even though all he was doing was protecting Brady on a block, he wasn't doing anything else that impacted the game whatsoever. But God forbid Ben Watson, outside of the first catch of the game, where Brady fit it into the smallest window possible, just have a productive day. I mean, the tight end position was atrocious for the Patriots all year. The, Matt LaCosse and Ben Watson were not the reincarnation of Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez that no one was expecting, probably, at all. Um... So, yeah, my, uh, Coach Vrabel here, uh, he really out-dueled uh, the Emperor in a way. He, before the game, allegedly in- said that, this, this is quote-unquote, you're going to get rubbed defensively. There's going to be gadgets. They're going to force you to think. We didn't hand them anything. They feast on bad football. I don't think our guys spent a lot of time looking at those banners. At one point, the Titans, in the last quarter, in the fourth quarter, ran nearly two minutes off the game clock without running a play by doing the uh, clock expiring penalty and then getting a lucky break also with one of the Patriots. I think it was Wise going off sides, which allowed them to keep running off the clock, which Bill Belichick was absolutely furious about because it was an exact move he pulled against the Jets earlier this season. So Vrabel's obviously still looking at film of Belichick and how he can improve as a coach, and it really showed, honestly, because all they did this game was run. They ran out the clock a majority of the time, which is going to keep Brady off the field. I, don't, I know Brady did not play particularly well in this game, but he didn't play really bad either, and you know if Brady gets any type of momentum going, he's going to absolutely pick you apart into pieces, despite the corpses that we had at wide receiver this year. Um... Tannehill was not good at all. He didn't need to be with Derrick Henry absolutely just terrorizing the Patriots defense, cutting through them like paper. It didn't really matter. He threw 72 yards passing, had a, almost a, he had a pick. He to Deron Harmon, who by the way, always seems to get post interceptions. I tweeted about it, except I spelled his name wrong. I, I, I think it auto-corrected to like, like harp Harmon or something. I don't know. And then, Tannehill fumbled it at one point on the like the key what looked like a key third down attempt. If Edelman didn't proceed to drop the third down catch on the other drive, we probably would have pointed fingers at Tannehill saying he lost them the game, but got lucky. As a whole, the Titans are now going to be heading in to Baltimore, which should be a better game. I honestly would think than the Patriots going into Kansas City. But at the same time, I think this Titans team is pretty solid, but they're now facing the cream of the crop of the AFC. And while I feel like they were a top-four team going in uh, from the AFC, a top-four team from the AFC going in, I'm going to talk about it later this week, but I don't see really how the Ravens defense can make – I think the Ravens defense can cause more hell to Tannehill and Derrick Henry than the Patriots defense could, especially if we're going off form. I'm going to save the Patriots' doomsday speech for another time, I think. I'm going to let it settle a little more because everyone's very knee-jerk reaction right now of what's going to happen with this Patriots dynasty. I know people say it's over. Unless Brady, Belichick, and Kraft, all like one of those three leave, the dynasty isn't over. The the fix for the Patriots is pretty simple. Um, Get a better wide receiver core. It's not that hard. You started the season with Antonio Brown, Edelman, Demarius Thomas, and Josh Gordon, and somehow it turned into (laughs) Julian Edelman, Mohamed Sanu, Philip Dorsett, who's always falling off the depth chart, and Nikhil Harry. I don't know. Uh, The Vikings, uh, this is where I'm going to have to eat crow here. Uh, The Vikings upset the Saints. And as I said last week, Saints fans would be furious, and uh, they were when they didn't get the no call, which we'll talk about in a minute. Captain Kirk decided to um, finally be worth that contract. So do you like that, he said? Yeah, uh, I do, because you're, with your contract, I kind of expect these types of performances from you. I know it must be really hard to deliver on expectations when you're all guaranteed money. He went 19 for 31, 242 yards, and one touchdown. That stat line does not seem that impressive on paper, but he had Dalvin Cook do what he needed to do. He also, in overtime, made an amazing throw to Adam Phelan over the top, a 43-yard bomb to get him right down to the goal line, and then hit Kyle Rudolph on a third-down touchdown, which was a little controversial. I mean, uh, definitely a push-off. They decided not to review it, which you would think after all the shit the Saints have got from refs, in the past few years that they'd be like, hey, you know what? We probably owe them one. But then everyone would say the only reason they got the challenge, well, the review, was because of these uh, calls that were never made. But it definitely was a push-off. I mean, you, Kyle Rudolph could have shoved that guy a little harder. He probably would have went into the, the stands at that point. And then Kyle Rudolph proceeds to be like, "Oh." Kirk can't win the big games. Apparently, I think we proved that wrong today. Um, I still would say that, that Kirk hasn't won the big game yet. There are way more big games to play, but I mean, the Vikings expected the Saints to call a zero blitz, so they so that for those who don't know, a zero blitz is basically when they sent everyone at the quarterback and at the snap. The Saints brought the house. So Rudolph knew, or Cousins knew, that Rudolph would be at the one on one in the fade, which is ironically, going back to the Patriots, a route that they famously did with Rob Gronkowski. And they would get him on the one on one, and that's where he would throw. And the Saints also got screwed going back a little bit in overtime because Marshawn Lattimore got hurt. And what did they do? They decided to throw that pass right to Thielen, who was whom Lattimore was guarding for a majority of the day and just hit him really quick and the the game was basically sealed from there another thing with the vikings though is that stefan Diggs was throwing a temper tantrum for what seemed like three whole quarters saying he like never got the ball they would give him like little end arounds but then <laughs> kirk cousins would throw passes in the dirt that were definitely meant for him but with kirk cousins uh amazing accuracy going 19 for 31 he uh kind of under threw Stefan Diggs a few times and Stefan Diggs was definitely open on some plays, but like as a quarterback, you can't read every single wide receiver being open or not. So, but like if the, if you're winning a game, I know I shouldn't, I'm a, just a college kid talking about like the, <laughs> the character that a wide receiver in the NFL should have. But like, I think this reply could apply to like five-year-old soccer. If you're winning a game and you're just not doing what you think you should be doing, if you're winning, the team's winning, you should just be happy that you're winning an NFL playoff game. Just be happy. You're winning. It doesn't matter that you're not scoring. Maybe you are the reason that you're winning because you're getting so much defensive attention that you're not getting the ball, which is allowing for your teammates like feeling to get open. Just sit down and just just appreciate that you're winning the game just take, like I would get it if you're losing and you're not getting the ball like with uh, the Browns with Jarvis Landry nota Beckham they're mad they're not getting the ball because their team is losing your team is winning football games you're beating the 13 and 3 Saints in the Superdome and the only thing you can think about is that you aren't getting the ball and that is just that is mind blowing to me that as a competitor, you just can't also be appreciative that your team is winning. It's all right. Uh, so the Saints, not so much of a breeze as we once thought, I guess. I mean, the Saints were bad on offense for a majority of the game. They bas- they had 25 yards in the first quarter, and their own only sign of life in the first three quarters was Taysom Hill, who probably through three quarters was their leading rusher, their leading receiver, and their leading passer. And Troy Aikman, on that... <laughs> I feel like Troy Aikman's been absolutely cooked by, like, most people I listen to on this play. But he, (laughs) on that huge Taysom Hill throw downfield to Harris, I think, he famously said, oh, I don't like plays where Drew Brees isn't on the field. And then Taysom Hill throws, like, a 50-yard bomb. This was definitely one of Brees' worst games in recent years. He threw an interception to Anthony Harris in double coverage. He dropped back, and Hunter blasted him from behind, which caused the ball to fall out. The Vikings recovered that breeze never touched the ball in overtime, which is another issue that I'm going to get to in a minute. But this saints offense was going on all cylinders. Even if the run game didn't work with Camara, they barely used Camara, which was so stupid. They had, they have Michael Thomas, they have Jared cook who had a decent game and like when the offense finally got to life, but Taysom Hill who threw like a 50-yard pass, had a 20-yard catch, and rushed for 50 yards, threw a key block on a touchdown run. I'm not saying at all that Taysom Hill should have started this whole game. I'm just saying it's it's shocking to me that the only form of offense they could get all game, really, was from Taysom Hill. It's pretty amazing that Alvin Kamara basically had like 15 touches the whole game, especially after he was coming into this game, being on quite a hot streak for production. Only to just have it all fall out by the end of the game, it's pretty wild to me. I mean, Drew Brees though pull it together in classic Drew Brees fashion in the fourth quarter. He went five for five on the two minute drive to tie up the game for Will Lutz hitting his forty nine yarder, which look kind of was pretty scary, seeing as they uh, didn't score a field goal going into the half, which means they would have. Well, or you know what? Hypotheticals just make the game even more stupid. All right, so this game was talked about from so many angles, but like what really the discussion seemed to come up is should OT be adjusted? I have what I believe, but I also have the counterpoint to what I believe. Um, Yeah, OT should be adjusted. How fair is it that you win a 50-50 coin flip that you can just drive down the field and score a touchdown and win the game without the other team touching the ball? I mean, obviously, I can't think of a way in which that it's more fair for a team to just score off of – like, I don't know how it's fair to decide who gets possession. Maybe, like, something in-game you could try to do, like, an incentive type thing. I don't know. Maybe, like, you could do the higher seed gets the ball first. The away team gets it just have something definitive i guess but 52 percent of teams that win the toss win the game which is not as convincing of a stat as it sounds but still it just shouldn't be up to chance to decide who gets it especially when the rule can be so brutal that you just have to score a touchdown to win and i know the argument can be made that defenses need to uh win the game i guess but at the same time, like I think both offenses just still get a chance. So the counterpoint to my point I just made is that teams already have 60 minutes to win the game and that the defense should make a stop like I just said earlier. But yet a team that wins on a first possession touchdown had those same 60 minutes and couldn't score outright either. So I guess it's like Devil's advocate for what you want. The NFL already has screwed up so many rule changes in this past season, especially with pass interference, which out of all the times to use the pass interference call, you didn't want to use the rule you made because of the Saints game for the Saints. Doesn't make sense. And you're telling me right now that if Drew Brees had that football after Kirk Cousins scored, you don't think there was a chance that he could also score and make them go into a second round of overtime? If you don't believe that, go look at Drew Brees' stats in game-winning drives and overtime overtime or just in general, and note that you just saw him go downfield when he had to to get this game in overtime. But no, Drew Brees definitely would not have scored at all. Yep, that makes sense. Instead, we're going to watch a 13-3 and team who was, I thought, the second best team in the NFC. Yeah, I know. The Packers are 13-3. I'll get to that in a minute. They aren't what I think that people think they are. But also... You had them go home, so now we're having the Vikings go playing the 49ers. I on it. I I am like pretty close to betting on this game that the Vikings will lose. It's such a safe bet. I feel like I think the high of Kirk Cousins is about to come to an end really quickly, even though it just started. It's just uh, I, I'm I'm pretty upset. Like I'm not a Saints fan. It sounds like I am, but I I just feel like I wanted better matchups for this next round. And honestly, I only think. Maybe one and a half of the four could be a decent game. So, all right, the Seahawks and Eagles went out early. A uh, credibly cheap shot from the back by uh, Jadavian Clowney, who was out for majority for like leading up to this game. He was out for a few games, and I'm not blaming. Jadavian clowny because in the moment i doubt the hit in clowny's mind was intended to give wentz extreme head trauma clowny was uh quoted as saying it was a bang bang play i didn't intend to hurt nobody in this league let me just put that out there but then follows it up by saying when you put, get to play the backup quarterback there's only so many plays that they can run so it seemed like he was pretty prepared to uh First off, you like, oh, well, obviously what I did to Wentz was pretty terrible. But at the same time, when you play the backup quarterback, it's pretty sweet because they don't have much practice. Yeah, you know what's also pretty sweet? <laughs> the fact that the Eagles are basically playing with their practice squad, and now they have their backup quarterback in, which honestly, when Wentz was in, the offense didn't really dazzle. But how can it dazzle when it's his first playoff game? He barely has played in those types of games, and his offense around him is absolutely garbage. Outside of the running backs, I really like the running backs. This game I will probably label as the Metcalf miracle. I mean, with Metcalf still available, this is a back story, by the way, in the draft last year, Philly passed on him in the second round, opting to pick another receiver who was on the field, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, with the 57th pick. Metcalf, who was taken seven picks later, I'm going to do a little uh, stat comparison here. Uh, Let's see if it matches up. DK Metcalf went once for 160 yards in that game. 53 of those came on a third-quarter touchdown. Yeah, and the super clutch third-down play to seal the game for the Seahawks. Wilson threw for 325 yards while Metcalf accounted for nearly half that total. If you're wondering why I didn't say anything about J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, it's because his stats definitely do not pop up. And I would rather not state them to embarrass J.J. Arcega-Whiteside because I'm not blaming him for not having a great game. The whole offense was just an absolute crapshoot of who was even going to perform. They had Zach Ertz come off a lacerated kidney, and broken ribs that he would have to be checked every quarter to see if the lacerated kidney would reopen, which I'm not a doctor. I know. Shocker. Uh, but when <laughs> you're getting checked every quarter, it's pretty safe to say that it's not fully healed. I know you want to be out there with your teammates, and this Eagles team had just absolute underdog written all over him, which Philly fans I know for a fact we absolutely in love with the idea that they had an underdog team which good for you guys but you gave it all you had the game was pretty much over the minute that Josh McCown stepped in but going on to that Josh McCown finally got his chance the 40 year old did not pull out a win for the Eagles but he did have a good go especially because he was playing with the entire practice squad of the philadelphia eagles which i think when josh mccown imagined his first playoff game as a quarterback as in the like as a quarterback he was like oh man yeah you know it's gonna be me rallying with my boys that i played all year with this is like what probably when he was like 23 (laughs) i'm not saying now Uh, but he's like, oh, man, we're going to go out there. We're going to have momentum. I'm going to know these guys like the back of my hand. We're going to just absolutely have a great time. Uh, Now, he was playing with, like, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, Boston Scott, Miles Sanders, Zach Ertz, Dallas Goddard, and, um, yep. That sucks. Um, But he didn't do that poorly. He completed 75% of his attempts for 174 yards and a 94.8 passer rating. He – also was way more mobile than I think any of us expected a 40-year-old quarterback to be he was putting his body on the line every play there were so many scrambles where the play was breaking down around him and he really had no choice but to run but instead of just sliding he was just going all out you could tell he knew that this was his last game and it was pretty much confirmed that this is probably the last game we're ever going to see Josh McCown play and what better way to go out than to play in a playoff game that you never played in before That's pretty insane that his last game – how many quarterbacks get that chance to have their last game ever be the first playoff game they ever played in? That's pretty cool. The Eagles also had a reasonable chance to tie this game just late in the game, though. Part of the reason that he got sacked on that final fourth down – he got sacked on that fourth down was because he alerted to a second play at the line of scrimmage. But not all of his teammates are on the same page, believe it or not, because they're not all established players because they were all off the practice squad. Pretty shocking. This game was so, so ugly. It was the ugliest and most boring game of the entire weekend, in my opinion. I did not like how Seattle looked in that game, even though I projected the win, and I'm glad they did. But the Eagles were by far the weakest roster in this entire playoff picture, and they could only muster up a 17 to nine win. Like I know the Seahawks are also hurt, but I would like the roster was way better for Seattle in that game and they I know Philly's a a tough place to play and whatnot, but still like good teams will show up and win. I know they won, but that doesn't excuse the fact that basically it was such a bad game. And like the running game for Seattle, which was gonna have question marks going into it, except Collinsworth was like, oh well, uh the, the Seahawks they picked up Orange. And also, uh, Travis Homer really showed up against uh, the 49ers last week. Okay. Chris, I know you like to just get excited over the smallest things on the planet. But at the same time, this rush this rushing game was atrocious. Beast mode is basically all muscle, which I'm not expecting much considering they pulled him out of retirement. I'm pretty sure he was trading for MMA. So, like, the only thing he has on him right now is probably muscle. He had six attempts for seven yards without one touchdown, which was pretty vintage Marshawn Lynch muscling his way into the end zone. But that was honestly, like, all of his yards. The Eagles' defense was, like, salivating every time Marshawn Lynch was on the field in a non-goal line situation. Travis Homer led the team in rushing outside of Russell Wilson for 12 yards. He had 11 carries. This Eagles defense was not known to terrorize. I mean, Russ had nine rushes for 45 yards. Half of those were just him scrambling out of the pocket on QB scrambles. It wasn't like they were intended rushes. Pass catch wise Linz had two for 25, and Homer was one for five. Like, all right. They're heading into Green Bay, who I do not think is a good team at all for being 13-3. I just saw when they compared their offense to last year that most of the stats are like a l- like worse than when they were with McCarthy. Not by a lot, but like by a little. But at the same time, this is still a very winnable game for Seattle. But I just wish they showed me a little more to make me feel more confident about picking them. I'm going to have more time to think about it until the next pod comes out on Friday, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to pick Seattle unless I just see something that really shifts my opinion here. But this makes it so that Russell Wilson is now five and zero against the team that notably had interest in drafting him, but passed on him three times because they thought they could wait to select him until the Seahawks nabbed him in the third round. And we all know how that went. It'd be pretty crazy to see Russ in a Philly uniform, because it would mean basically none of their stuff could have happened. But at the same time, hypotheticals, as I've said, are kind of stupid. So we're just going to let that go for now. All right, that's enough NFL for right now. Uh, we're gonna I'm going to do a little NBA trade talk really quickly, seeing as I feel like there's some notable stuff going on. It's honestly what I'm interested in talking about too. So I'm not only going to just talk about stuff that's relevant. I'm going to talk about stuff that I feel like is kind of interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about the Kevin Love saga in Cleveland. Now I know here's the deal. No one cares about the Cavs besides me and the, the state of Ohio, and maybe like a few other people like me who are just out there and liking the team. Kevin Love's contract is the big issue here. I mean, GMs are horrified to touch the three year, $90 million left on his deal. Why are GMs acting like they do not offer these deals to lesser players? There are Chandler Parson deals out there. Chandler Parsons is still in the league. He plays on the Hawks. He's getting paid like the Grizzlies initially had the contract. It was terrible. The the Hawks own like three of the worst contracts in the league right now that you're telling me are not as bad as taking on Kevin Love. There's Crab, Kevin Turner and Chandler Parsons. Those three deals are all on the Hawks. That that's okay. So, the argument for Kevin Love is that he's injury-prone, he's 31, and he has $90 million left on his deal. Okay. Love, unlike the players I mentioned prior, still brings real value on the court. Even though Cleveland is playing pretty pretty bad this year, he's still scoring 16.5 points, 10.6 rebounds, while shooting 37.5% for three. This could help a lot of the teams that are trying to make the playoffs. They're, not to mention... There is about to be a slow free agent summer, and that will make teams desperate. I know Love has thrown a few temper tantrums, and this makes the team... Well, okay, Love throws the temper tantrum, which I'm giving him a full pass for, because this team is so aggravating to watch. First off, Colin Sexton, for as good of a scorer as he seems he can be, which is very deceiving if you look at the stat lines, He'll have games that are good, but he has the worst decision-making. The term young bull makes way more sense than I think the reason that he got the nickname was intended for. When the kid drives, he doesn't look up. He just keeps his head bowed down, going full speed, and takes a ridiculously contested layup when he could just kick the ball out and keep the offense moving. But no, that doesn't seem like that can happen. Okay. All right. So Love recovered from a media blast that he got basically over the past few days, which has been the only news Cleveland has really gotten this year, was that Kevin Love was being upset about how poor the team is being run right now, which as a young team is always going to go through growing pains. But he showed up yesterday and showed his worth for what I believe when he played against the Pistons and had a 30-point game with nine rebounds and four assists with 12 for 15 shooting and four for six from three he brings value to most of these playoffs teams and waiting really as i've heard like they they said it could wait till the summer that does not help anyone love will just get older so the so the production you're going to get from him is could be worse and this youth movement will stall in cleveland which will not allow for the team to just grow through this terrible time at in general i feel like the cavs should try to really push to deal love before the deadline because the longer he's there the more upset he'll be and it will just make it a more hostile environment not saying he's a hostile player but veterans that feel like the team should be winning and this team has a few that really want to be competitive because like in the twilight or not the twilight like towards the end of like what you've considered to be their prime you really want to win and i can see where kevin loves coming from there is no no anger, I feel like, from Cavs fans about the way Kevin Love is acting. I think the only reason that they would even be remotely upset is because it's hurting his own trade value. I I do see a way in which they can let him go. They can trade him for an asset or two. I think there is a team out there that's going to decide at the last minute that they do need this. It looked like a few days ago we were trading him when we uh, cut Alonzo McKinney and um, Tyler Cook, but that just didn't seem to fully. Fledge out it turns out we were just going to sign another G League player so that was awesome That was a good tease another NBA Player that's getting a lot of trade talk Attention is Andre Drummond I'm sorry Andre Drummond is getting so overvalued In today's NBA For like what he's worth people are saying he like could Help change a lot of things He's viewed as a much better value Than love I think it's because he's expiring He's a like he's Kind of a 20 and 20 machine sure he's very limited offensively and he's not a good defender over his career he's averaging 17.5 and 16 on 52 percent field goal shooting however also to like in his defense since the 2015 and 2016 season he has led the nba in total rebounds but in today's nba i do not feel the old school center would help much of these playoff teams make a push The only teams I honestly see that it would make sense for them to get him are like the Celtics or the Mavs who like literally need that exact player that Andre Drummond provides. And you're getting a rental for the most part because he is going to be headlining this uh, interesting free agent class. I mean, it's going to be really – it would be really hard as stated by like so many for anyone to follow up this (laughs) free agent class that just came through with so many team-altering stars All right, for those who don't know, this is what basically is the headliners of this free agent draft class. You're going to have Anthony Davis, who if he doesn't go back to the Lakers, would honestly shock everyone. Draymond, I don't know many teams that will be banging on Draymond's door, but I also feel like the Warriors are definitely going to bring him back, considering he's the heart and soul of that team. Eric Gordon, who is deceivingly old, Gordon Hayward who we don't know how long he stays healthy or if he'll continue to have a good season with the Celtics. Mike Conley looks like an absolute disaster right now in Utah. It's way too early to say so because they got him for the playoffs, and so we'll see how that goes. And DeMar DeRozan and Brandon Ingram and a lot of other restricted free agents, but we'll see. Drummond would leave a team. Drummond will leave because no lottery-bound team should make this trade. I know I see everyone sees Atlanta. Like, as headlining this, they should trade for Andre Drummond. Uh, He's going to leave. He's 26 in his prime and should be helping good teams win, not bad teams develop a culture in young situations. What culture has Andre Drummond ever had with the Pistons? They went to the playoffs twice. In his whole time being there and have never won a game his best teammate he has ever had was Blake Griffin who has never shared the court with him for more than 20 game stretches I'm sorry like the lottery team like the Hawks and I've I, I've also heard the Cavs would be interested to just stay away I would rather have Tristan Thompson for even if like if I was another if I was like I would still argue I'd rather have Tristan Thompson on the team right now than Andre Drummond because Tristan Thompson is very adaptable to situations and what he can do. He's definitely found himself again in this year with the Cavs becoming a better player. I know this is a lot of Cavs-oriented talk, but like also like they are selling a lot, so it would help a lot of other teams to get some of their better veterans on this roster or Colin Sexton if you want him because I don't think we really do that much right now. But also – I feel like a lot of the trade deadline should be very interesting. I I think everyone hasn't even decided if they want to be buyers or sellers. I think the free agency this year has really shifted everyone's interests and what they want to do in terms of what their money. I mean, a lot of teams have money now, but what are they going to spend it on? The, I I couldn't even tell you. I think it's going to be a Brandon Ingram sweepstakes, honestly, at this point for where he gets to pick, especially based off his play. And the Pelicans would just be stupid not to give him the contract, even though they're definitely kicking themselves for not letting him have it now. Well, yeah, that's really all I got for today. Uh, This time, next Friday, you're going to get a new podcast on the playoff format, matchups, and a very special guest with gambling picks. Thanks for listening. Also, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends.